Well, we can turn back to Isaiah chapter uh, 52 and read again verses 13 uh, to 15. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them they see, and that which they have not heard they understand. Isaiah, this passage from Isaiah, as we know, is one of the four servant songs. There are three others in Isaiah called as servant songs because they appear as poetry and because they focus on an individual or a group of people whom God describes as my servant. And as we look at this fourth one, well, it's fairly obvious who it's about. It's about Jesus. As has often been said, Isaiah, his prediction, his prophecy here, he almost could have written it at the foot of the cross, just explaining uh, what uh, was taking place there. This particular song uh, divides into five sections. And uh, the one we have, the verses we have read, it's the introduction to it. And then after that, there's four other sections, verses one to three, and then four to six, and then seven to nine, and then 10 to 12. And in the introduction and in each of the sections, the same two things are mentioned. And the two things that are mentioned is his sufferings and his glory. And as the poem develops, so the description of his sufferings and the descriptions of his glory develop as well. Peter, um, in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 to 11, he says about all the Old Testament, so uh, including uh, this particular passage, he says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So as we read 
this particular song, as well as other prophetic passages, um, we have to remind ourselves that quite often the prophet that said them didn't know what he was talking about. As Peter says, that they searched and inquired carefully, and they were aware that the Spirit in Christ, the Spirit of Christ in them, was indicating something. That they couldn't quite get it. Because from one point of view, it seems contradictory, doesn't it? His suffering and his glory, well, they seem two opposites, especially as his suffering was going to end in death. I mean, how can somebody get glory if they're going to die? But anyway, that's what they were predicting, and as we can see from uh, this even this introduction, there's a focus on both his suffering and his glory. We already thought about what it meant for him to act wisely. And we can almost see the Heavenly Father speaking there in verse 1, giving to us an ex- exuberant um, exhortation telling us to behold, behold his servant, and especially to behold his wisdom. Sometimes, at least going for myself, when we we read about Jesus in the Gospels, how often do we think of his wisdom? And yet it's highlighted again and again. The... Even when he was a child, we're told that he grew in wisdom. And even as an adult, his enemies had to say about him, never man speak like this man. His words were so wise, his actions, everything he did, he acted wisely. He never did anything foolish. And of course, that's quite a statement because there's nobody else that could be said of. Anyone else somewhere along the line has said something foolish or done something foolish. But that's not the case with Jesus. Everything he did was just correct, wise. And so whenever you look at him, I think that's a very crucial thing to notice. And it's what God the Father wants us to notice. To notice how he acted wisely. But then in verse 13, he, the Father goes on to say about uh, Jesus that he will be a threefold description of his glory. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And uh, this uh, threefold description of him has led to various kinds of innovative suggestions as to what is meant by them. 
For example, it's quite common for someone to say, well, there's three things here. So they refer to his resurrection and to his ascension and to his enthronement. He shall be high, that's his resurrection. He shall be lifted up, that's his ascension. And he shall be exalted, that's his enthronement. And I don't know if you've heard that before, but it's quite a common way of reacting to these, this trilogy of things. <clears throat> it's not the only way it's been suggested to read it, of course. Uh, the ancient Jews had a different way of looking at it. Uh, they, when they saw this threefold um, distinction of, or features of his exaltation, they said, well... One that means he's greater than Moses, and one that means he's greater than Abraham, and one that means he's greater than the angels. And that just goes to show that if we want to, we can read anything into the Word of God that we want. And another description that's given is that his threefold exaltation refers to his crowning, and then the way he conquers his enemies and then the way he'll judge everybody at the end. And without being disrespectful, since it's not clear which three to choose, it probably suggests that none of them should be chosen. And instead, what we have here is just a superlative way of describing the heights of his exaltation. If we use two things to decide or to describe an exaltation, then we're elevating it somewhat. And if we use three things to describe it, we're making it even higher. So, the Father is basically saying to us, just consider how high Jesus has gone. And how high has he gone? It's important for us to remind us just how high he is. There's lots of people trying to be high. Look at the news every day. It's usually about somebody trying to be high. But... No one went as high as this, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 and verses 9 to 11. And apparently he has, Paul has coined a new word when he was writing this verse. Therefore God has highly exalted him. And what there is translated as highly exalted means to hyper exalt it. For God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I think sometimes we look at that verse and we say, um, we jump on to the day of judgment. And we say that, well, that's the day all this is going to happen. 
I know that that is true on the day of judgment. Uh, everybody will confess that he is Lord. But I don't think that's what Paul is saying. He is saying here that now, this is what everyone should do. That each of us here and everybody else in the world today, that because the name of Jesus is so high, we should confess. And of course, the word confess is a very interesting word. Because it means to say it to somebody else, doesn't it? If we confess something, we're saying it to somebody else. And we are to confess that he is Lord. He is Lord today. Lord of everything. In a certain sense, that's the message of the book of Acts. Wherever they went, the Christian church, it just confessed the Lordship of Christ. And they indicated that they were just prepared to serve him and no one else. And I don't know about you, but the idea of confessing, we sort of link it to confessing something bad. But the actual word confessing just means to say it as it is. And how, what is life like really today? Who's in charge of it all? And the answer to that question, of course, is it's Jesus. He's highly exalted, given the name that's above every name. And because he has been given that, we should gladly confess it and not be embarrassed at all about saying that we believe he is in charge. All power, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to him. And he does say, of course, doesn't he, if we don't confess him, he will not confess us. So confession is very important. Confessing that he is our Lord, the Lord, the only Lord, seated on God's throne, high above everything, no one could go where he has gone. And it's good to know that. And the Heavenly Father tells us to look at that. Behold. Take time to think about it. Today is the Lord's day. The ideal day for just thinking about how great Jesus is just to remind ourselves where he has gone, place of universal power. It's good for our souls to think about that. And of course, one reason for beholding it is that he deserves it and it will never be taken from him. He's there forever and 
one day, as I said earlier, we will actually see that. But the Heavenly Father, as he's speaking there in these verses 13 to 15, he suddenly, in verse 14, turns, if we want to put it that way, he turns and speaks directly to his servant. He says there at the start of verse 14, as many were astonished at you. He doesn't say, as many were astonished at him, which is what we would expect as we read these verses, because he tends to be speaking in the third person. But all of a sudden there in verse 14, he just stands, he just turns and speaks father to son and just says, and he's not giving the son any information. The son knows this already. But it is indicating in this, what we could call this inter- Trinitarian conversation that they focus on what they are exhorting us to focus on. And the Heavenly Father says to his beloved Son, and perhaps even today he's saying it, Almost as if he's saying, I remember the cross. It's engraven on my heart. Even if although I am God of all, and even although I have billions of things I can contemplate every moment, I remember this. Many were astonished at you. And of course, that's what happened at the cross. And this kind of conversation between the Father and the Son, we find it in the Old Testament quite often. And for example, there in Psalm 40, and verses 6 to 8, where David says, In sacrifice and offering you have not delighted, but you have given me an open ear. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I have come, and the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O my God, your law is within my heart. And that verse, or these verses, sorry, they're quoted in the book of Hebrews in chapter 10, and the author of Hebrews in chapter 10 says quite specifically that the Son of God said these words as he was coming into the world. And we think of the conception and the birth of Jesus. We tend to think about his uh, humanity. 
But as we know, he wasn't just a man. He was also God. So what was God saying at that moment? What was God the Son saying at that moment? And we're told what he was saying. I delight to do your will. I am coming here to do it. Your law was within my heart. And where's that intention going to take him? It's going to take him to the cross. He knew all about it, and he came. So, what do we make of it? What is highlighted in these verses? Well, I just want to think briefly about four things. Surprise. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance. So there's surprise. Then there's sufferings. Why did he suffer so? And then there's his sprinkling. He shall sprinkle many nations. What does that mean? And then there's silence. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. So there's surprise, sufferings, sprinkling, and silence. The surprise is twofold. And we could put it this way, the two features, we mentioned it a minute ago, he's going to have horrendous suffering. beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That's one aspect of the surprise. But the second aspect, aspect of it is contained in that phrase we mentioned a minute ago. So shall he sprinkle many nations. And of course, the little word so should make us pay attention Whatever it means for him to sprinkle many nations, he couldn't have done it unless he had suffered so badly. And that's what the word so tells us, isn't it? There's a connection between this global activity he's going to engage in of sprinkling the nations and of his horrendous sufferings. So here's the surprise. And as we think of it being a surprise, it's, it's something that should astonish us. So that's the whole point of a surprise. If something doesn't astonish us, it's not really a surprise. But this particular twofold aspect of what's been described here, we're to consider his sufferings and the sprinkling. So his sufferings. How does somebody explain what verse 14 means? With what do we compare it? 
Because that's how we normally explain things. We compare it with something. If we say it's so-and-so is great, we contrast him or her with somebody that's inferior. So here's God the Father's assessment of Calvary. Of what Jesus looked like on the cross. His appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. I suppose we could say that the only person that actually knows how much human suffering there's actually been is God. And isn't that the case? Only God knows how much human suffering there's been. You and I, we got a slight awareness of the vast amount there is. And sometimes when we watch it on the news, we're appalled. And God the Father, he's not minimizing the suffering of anyone else when he says this description here. But he is indicating the degree of the Savior's pain. You know, I'm sure we've all seen films of the death of Jesus. But I've never yet seen one where the actor looked as if he was suffering beyond human semblance. and is formed beyond that of the children of mankind. The older versions, they didn't have the word astonishment here. They had a slightly different word, astonished, as many as were astonished at you. And we may wonder why they put that in. Because we can be astonished in with a sense of wonder. Or sometimes we can be astonished with a sense of revulsion. And the idea here when it's talking about his appearance being so marred. It almost means we can't bear to look. But God is saying to us, regarding this sight that we cannot bear to look at it, God is saying to us, behold it. Gaze at it. Don't take your eyes off it. Take in all its details. It might cause you initially 
to be regarded with revulsion. But keep looking at it. It doesn't become less graphic, but it will become more attractive as we see the degree of his distress. And although the focus here is on his outward appearance, we're not to be, it's not to be limited to what people did to him. And we know what they did to him. They beat him and they hit him with rods and slapped him on the face. It's not to be limited to that, of course. Think of the shame. The awfulness of the shame. The distress he went through. You know, you and I can walk down High Street and never bat an eyelid at all the wrong things we see. And our ears are not affected by the wrong things that we hear. But Jesus, every wrong sight distressed him. Every wrong word disturbed him. And when he hung on the cross, he saw there awful things. And he heard them. And it all contributed to his awful appearance. It kind of oozed out of him. Distress. He's forsaken. Abandoned. On his own. It was all voluntary, of course. You know, there wasn't one second during that awful period that he didn't volunteer to take. I read what this man said, a man called <clears throat> David Barron, he said this about these words. By these strong words and expressions, the Spirit of God seeks to give us a glimpse into the depth and intensity of the vicarious sufferings of our Savior and of the greatness of the cost of our redemption. And as we contemplate this picture of the man of sorrows, with the face which for us was marred more than that of any man, and with his form bowed and disfigured more than the sons of men. May our hearts be stirred with shame and sorrow for the sin which was the cause of it all, and with greater love and undying gratitude to him who bore all this for us. Some people like to write things on their Bibles. 
What should we write beside these words? How about, this is what I did to Jesus. Or this is what one of my little sins caused for Jesus. as we gaze at it, or at him I should say, the revulsion of the extent of his agony turns to admiration. We are not surprised at that kind of thing, are we? We can admire the sacrifice of the soldier who gets horrendous injuries because of his bravery in defending us. Or we can admire the fireman who is damaged because of the flames he goes into to rescue someone. Or of the nurse who in order to help cure someone experiences great distress himself or herself. And while we are, we don't like what we see, we admire the person. How much more then should we admire the Savior as he's marred more than any man? And the Heavenly Father gives us an instruction. Keep looking at it. Never take your eyes off it. And as I said already in verse 14, the Father and the Son speak to each other about it. As many were astonished at you. Maybe the Father is saying to him tonight, Many and great friars are astonished at you. So that's his suffering. And then there's his sprinkling. So shall he sprinkle many nations. It's connected to the disfigurement. Sprinkling, of course, was a function of a priest, of a priest in Israel. They would sprinkle people either with blood or with oil or with water, and it indicated cleansing. Somebody would go up to see him for some reason, and the priest would Because a sacrifice had been offered, he could sprinkle blood on the the people and symbolically announce their cleansing. But here it's not something symbolic. It's because he is the sacrifice, that he can be the sprinkler. And he's going to sprinkle 
many nations. Because he's done the first, he'll definitely do the second. Because he has suffered so badly, he definitely will engage in the other task of the servant. Because in order to be a good servant, he has to do everything that's required of him. And as, this, as a good servant, he is meant to pay the penalty for sin, and then he's got to tell people about it. That's his role. And that's what he's doing today, of course, isn't it? Paul, writing to the Ephesians, said these words, and no doubt we read them often. And of course, Jesus had never been to Ephesus physically. But Paul says to the Ephesians that Jesus came and preached peace to you, to them, who were far off and peace to those who were near. When did Jesus do that? He did it when he sent his servants, his people there, and they spoke about it to people. That was Jesus conveying his message. He did it to those who were far off, that's the Gentiles, and to those who were near, that's the Jews. And he personally is involved. It's not that he's, just, that he's got a, a, an agent that he sends in his place. I mean, anybody can send an agent, and the agent can be miles away from the sender. But that's not the way it is with Jesus. He's with his agent. As Paul says elsewhere, we beseech you in Christ's stead, be reconciled to God. So he came and preached peace. There we did that in Ephesus, and that was just Jesus sprinkling the Ephesians. And he's doing it all over the world today, pronouncing them clean. A global ministry. Just to, just try and work it out. Just just <clears throat> it might it might sound silly, but we could just sort of say, well, he's done it in Inverness, and he's doing it in Nairn, he's doing it in Forest, he's doing it in Elgin, he's doing it in Hockerburs, he's doing it in Keith, and he's doing it in Huntley, and just go along the road or go down the A9. Or go around every village or town in the country and just say Jesus has been functioning there. Sprinkling them. It's extraordinary, isn't it? And then if we spread it from our own country and include the entire world, how many places today has Jesus been doing this? Extraordinary. And this was the motive of Paul's ministry. Because there in Romans chapter 15, he quotes these verses. He says, I make it my ambition to preach the gospel not where Christ has already been named, lest I build on someone else's foundation. But as it is written, and then he quotes these verses from Isaiah 52, 
Those who have never been told of him will see, and those who have never heard will understand. It's amazing. Something to make our hearts leap for joy. That sinners all over the world today were pronounced clean by the Savior. And we know what the outcome is going to be, don't we, at the end of the day, as in Revelation chapter 7. This global ministry of Jesus, what's it going to achieve? After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And how did they get there? These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Jesus sprinkles them with the gospel. The gospel brings cleansing to their experience. Amazing. And that's why there's silence. Who are the one people on earth that you don't expect to be silent? Who have always got something to say? Well, it's the rulers, isn't it? Because they seem to have the power to always say something but something. But Isaiah says here, they're going to hear something that's going to silence them. What are they going to hear? The gospel. They're going to be astonished by what they are told that this disfigured man opened up for all sinners, including kings, a way back to God. They'll understand what none of their wise men ever told them. That Jesus is the Savior. That he can do for their nations what they cannot do for them. With all their policies, they can't take away one sin. But Jesus, he can. And this silence is a kind of combination of wonder and delight and love and longing.
Sometimes we see a sight, and as we put it, it takes our breath away. Don't know how to describe it. The details overwhelm us. Maybe gazing at the Grand Canyon at sunset. What words do we use? There's a certain sense in which the cross is not a place for speaking. It's a place for looking, for staring, for taking it in. The ugliness, the effectiveness, the incredible love that was displayed, just to be overwhelmed, overwhelmed by the goodness of God, the riches of his grace. When we go to the cross, Who else should we speak about? The only one worth looking at is the man on the center cross. So here we have it. His incredible sufferings of the great servant. And the incredible activities of that servant since then. And which you will engage in as long as time lasts. Sprinkling the nations. Hope he sprinkled all of us. That we're clean in his sight. Shall we pray?